Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. As promised, here is the audio from the first ever Heroic Minds live event called Redefining Toughness. I had six guests from the podcast come out and share their story and have an interactive conversation with myself as well. It was a success beyond what I could have ever imagined and has actually now made me realize through requests from people in the audience that we're going to continue to do this thing. If you have any constructive criticisms, comments, send me an email. As always, I'll put my email in the description of this episode. Again, this is Redefining Toughness at the University of Waterloo, the first ever Heroic Minds live event. Enjoy. This is an intimidating amount of people that turned out. So my name is Ben Finelli. I'm the host of the Heroic Minds podcast. I can't thank you enough for being here today and, and continuing to make this Heroic Minds project something bigger than I ever thought it was going to be when my good buddy said you should just start a podcast. So to be honest with everyone out of the gates, um, when I planned this event with or started planning this event with the representatives from the University of Waterloo, they said, have you ever moderated an event like this before or run an event like this in this format? And the truth is I never have. But of course, my answer was yes, many times. Many times I've done this. So this is new for me, completely start to finish. The format's new. And I think it's new for some of our speakers as well. But I think that's what makes it exciting. And I think that goes with everything we're about to talk about today. So the first thing is, what is Heroic Minds? Where did it start? What is it? And to be honest, I was transitioning out of the game of hockey, and a good buddy of mine said, you know what, maybe you should try a podcast. And he said that because I was trying all these social ventures to try and give back to this community that was so great to me through an injury I went through. So how can I give back? And my buddy said to me, you know what, you should start a podcast. You like public speaking. You like working through problems. So my personality was I went out the next day, and I bought two microphones from Staples. I, true story, put them in my backpack. And I approached two incredible people that I knew that are going to speak tonight. And I said, would you like to share your incredible story on the podcast? We'll get it on the internet and see where this goes. So that was the first two episodes, and then three, four, five, six. And then something incredible happened and continues to happen today. The first thing is people were reaching out to me that were always too cool. I think we can all relate to people like that in our lives. They're too cool to open up, too cool to be vulnerable. They don't talk about the tough stuff. And those people started emailing me and texting me saying, thanks for having that conversation with so-and-so. It really affected my life in a positive way. Or it was, thank you for doing that episode. I shared it with someone in my family that's dealing with that or dealing with something similar. So now I was having open conversations with people I never thought I would that was helping me and them. And then the other incredible thing was I started to take these stories of these incredible people we'll hear from shortly, and I was sharing them in elementary schools and high schools. And to this day, every time I speak at a school, the gym empties and three or four students stay back to talk to me. And these students will line up and they'll share the adversities and challenges that they deal with every day. 
And it's the most incredible thing because they don't stand waiting in line or they don't approach me with their head buried in their feet. They don't say it in a sad way. They come up to me with their shoulders back, standing up nice and tall after they heard the stories of these incredible people here. And they tell me as if it's a badge of honor. They tell me as if, not why me, but look at this opportunity I have to deal with this now. It's full of courage. And that's what I get to see every time I share these incredible stories. So that's what the Heroic Minds podcast is. It's helping people to take control and be the hero of their own story. So then what is redefining toughness? Where does that all tie in? Well, I've realized one thing, and we were actually talking about it in the back room with all the speakers. It's, wow, we're, there's six of us. We're from completely different parts of life. We've been through completely different challenges. We're all back there laughing, making jokes. There's so many similarities, yet there are so many differences. And it's amazing to see that these stories are bringing people together. They're also inspiring people in a way that some of us can relate to, but not all of us can. And I'm, I've always tried to put my finger on what is the one thing that, that makes people tough? What is the one thing that makes people resilient? And often people like to say, oh, well, it's how you're raised. And I hate hearing that because that's not fair. What if you're faced with a challenge and you were raised differently than someone else? And so why I want to redefine toughness today is because all these people went through completely different challenges and were tough in completely different ways. And I feel there's an infinite amount of opportunities and abilities we have that will, will make someone tough through adversity. So I want to redefine this. I want everyone in this room to realize they have the characteristics in them to be tough or be resilient. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to stop talking because I'm sweating. Um, <laughs> I'm going to sit down. Oh, I'm going to sit down. And what we're going to do next is I'm going to welcome up three of our speakers. And they're going to share their story in five minutes. And don't worry, the timer won't blow up if you go over five minutes. That was a joke we were talking about in the back. Um, and then I'm going to ask some questions with speakers. We'll have a little bit of a conversation. We'll have a little intermission. We'll do the exact same thing with three more speakers. And then at the end, the most exciting part is all six speakers are going to be up here and we'll have a live conversation with you, the audience. You can ask whatever question you'd like. So I'm excited. Again, this is new for me. It's new for our speakers up here. And I could not be more excited because these stories have changed my life in an incredible way and I can't wait for them to do the same for you. So first, we're going to welcome up and hold the applause until I welcome all three up. Amber Schufelt, who is living an incredible, triumphant life with cystic fibrosis. And she's made it her goal now in life to make life better for those that are born with CF in the future. Next, we're gonna hear from Ryan Martin, who for quite a long time denied that he had bipolar disorder. He didn't wanna believe it. And the moment he accepted it, found the medication he needed, that's the moment he found the control over bipolar disorder. He then decided not long after that he was gonna take a short bike ride from coast to coast across the country to inspire those with mental health adversities as well. And the, next, the third person we'll hear from is Matthew McCoy, who was, while he was raised, he was abused by a family member, which led to a life of addiction, prison, and more. But now coming full circle, 11 years of sobriety and a hero for those struggling with addiction today. 
So we'll welcome our three first speakers up. So first, we're going to hear from Amber, obviously. Okay. So I'll get, hand it over to you. Thank you. So hi, everybody. Um, as Ben explained, my name's Amber. I'm super excited to be here tonight to share my story with all of you. My journey with cystic fibrosis, or CF, as I'll refer to it, uh, started at a really young age when I was diagnosed at two. Um, cystic fibrosis is a fatal genetic disease, and currently there isn't any cure. For those first uh, two years of my life, I was very ill, um, and I wasn't getting any better. My parents kept advocating for me and taking me back to doctor after doctor, and then finally I was referred to London Hospital, which is where I was diagnosed with CF. If it wasn't for my parents' um, unwavering strength to continue taking me back and asking questions while I was failing to thrive, I really wouldn't be here today. Um, I like to share my story of living with this disease and the adversity that comes with it because cystic fibrosis is sometimes hard to see from the outside and we don't always look sick and each person that lives with this disease um, struggles very differently. So like I said, CF is a genetic disease affecting the respiratory and the digestive system mainly but it's also straining many other parts of our body as well. A typical day for me includes um, an array of different treatments um, consisting of hours of medication, nebulizers filled with um, different antibiotics, steroids, and anti-inflammatories to help me have the energy to fight off infections, to live my life, go to work, and just daily tasks. Along with this, I have to take enzymes whenever I eat to help break down my food. Just like you, my pancreas secretes enzymes, but because of my CF, it makes it so sticky mucus blocks these enzymes from being able to do their job, and it doesn't allow this process to happen naturally. So as you can see, a lot of work goes in behind the scenes, um, and it's not always easily shown how sick we might be. But I haven't let this extra work stop me from achieving my goals. I finished high school, and I went on to obtain an honors degree in criminology at Wilfrid Laurier. Sorry, UW. <laughs> um, I then went on to uh, Conestoga College, where I got my paralegal graduate certificate, and I recently was accepted as a licensed paralegal through the Law Society of Ontario. So I now have a career working at a law firm in Elmira where I continue to work hard each day. I'm given the ability to do so. I don't take my life I'm going, okay. <laughs> I don't take my life for granted knowing I've already accomplished a lot of things that many people with CF won't ever get the chance to do. While I was growing up, I never wanted to hear the sad parts about CF. Um, I never wanted my parents to tell me when somebody I know living with it has passed away from it. But as I got older, I realized that it's not really the reality of it. I had to find acceptance in the scary aspects of the illness and move forward, gaining further strength from that. And I need to be the voice for those battling with CF who are too tired and sick to do so, knowing that there might be a time that I need others to do that for me. 
More recently, though, I experienced the more scary sides of CF, where I do everything I can to stay healthy. Sorry. Um, doing extra treatments each day and extra medications, and it doesn't work. My body does what it wants and goes against all those efforts to combat it. And that's the part that really sucks, and that's the challenge. At an early age, I learned to accept my reality and move forward. I can't compare my realities to others, and I had to find peace and live my life to the absolute fullest while I can. So my, day, my days might be longer, requiring hours of treatment that others really don't have to think about. And my nights might be longer, up coughing, full of exhaustion um, from a normal day of activities. But during my weakest moments, my caregivers are there with unwavering support. Um, but it's also really difficult to allow myself to show just how sick I am in front of them. I don't like asking for help or displaying symptoms of weakness. And although my caregivers will never really understand what it's like to have this disease and be in my world, I really will never know what it's like to be a caregiver in their world for somebody with CF. And I've learned that all we can really do is accept each other's roles and love each other through it. So knowing that this is my reality of the symptoms potentially catching up to me can be scary. But if I surround myself with positive people, my family, my friends, my husband, my coworker, um, their positive and constant, constant support is, really helps me through it. So when I'm down and having a bad day, that's what really keeps me going. Um, I tell myself that if people hadn't um, done this in the past, then I really wouldn't be here today. So, sorry. Um, though I didn't really have a say in how I got this disease, I have a say in how I fight it, and I have a say in how I live with it, and the people I choose to surround myself with. So I have a say in the strength that I have as well. And if I live the rest of my life maintaining this attitude, because there's no other option, this is my life, and I'm the one who controls it. So thank you for listening. So next we're going to hear from Ryan Martin and his journey with bipolar disorder. Is this on? Okay. Um, my, uh, my journey really got exciting and interesting after I did the podcast with Ben. Um, but I'll take you back to the beginning. I grew up in Guelph, and in high school, that's when I was experiencing a lot of anxiety. So it was social anxiety, performance anxiety for school and sports. Um, but I really just kind of dismissed it as like low confidence, low self-esteem. And so then I got into Laurier for business, program of my dreams, living with my best friends, doing well in school, meeting people, sports. But that's when the periods of depression kicked in for me. And so it would be periods of depression, then periods of anxiety, and then both, and then suicidal breakdowns. And it was not only scary, but it was confusing and frustrating because I just had no idea why this was happening. There was nothing really pointing for that to happen. Um, and throughout my four years at university, I really tried to just take it on uh, on my own. And I would say, okay, well, what do I have? What am I struggling with? I'd say, social anxiety, okay. So let's do a social anxiety course online. And I learned that speaking slowly when you're socially anxious calms your nerves down. 
and I go to a party and I do that and I feel great. And I feel like, great, this is what I need to do and everything is going to go away. And then I'd be depressed two weeks later and everything's moving so slowly already that slow talk doesn't do anything. So I say, okay, this tool's not going to work. What's the next tool? And then that would stop working. What's the next tool? What's the next tool? I kept thinking that every single tool is going to make everything go away. So it's a kind of vicious cycle. And so after I finished university, I had a huge, huge breakdown. Um, I went to emergency. I had to open up about everything with, to my parents and the doctors. And I got diagnosed as bipolar. And that was really hard. Um, for me, bipolar was this huge word. And uh, I really just didn't want to believe it. And so I kind of had to go with it. So the next year was really me just kind of quietly dealing with the medications, the side effects, the ups and downs, the worst anxiety, the worst depression uh, on my own. And then, and this is where kind of things changed. I got to a point where I was like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm so embarrassed about what I'm dealing with. I'm so scared to talk about it. So I said, all right, I'm sick of this. So I said, okay, I want to plan this trip. I've always wanted to bike across Canada. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to do the ride. I'm going to tell everyone that I have bipolar, everyone that I have anxiety, depression, that I've been suicidal, and I'm going to try and raise money and awareness. So I did. I flew out, quit my job, flew out to Vancouver Island, started in Tofino, biked four months to St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, it was 10,000 kilometers, and uh, we raised 125 grand for the Canadian Mental Health Association. So overall, thank you. Thank you. Overall, it's a huge success. Um, physically, emotionally challenging, but the, the dollars or the kilometers are really, they weren't the reason why I was doing it. The thing that was the most rewarding was the impact and the conversations that I had with Canadians in every single province. You know, I had people in the middle of the mountains in British Columbia breaking down in front of me, crying. Uh, people in a fishing village, Arnold's Cove, Newfoundland, breaking down in front of me, crying about mental health. Um, so it didn't take long for me to realize that, you know, we are so desperate to talk about how we're feeling, but we don't get many opportunities to. And it's funny because mental health is one of the things that affects us the most, but it's talked about the least. And so in terms of me and what I learned on this trip, I learned about acceptance. And that's what we talked about, Ben already talked about. The power of acceptance, you know, for so long I fought and battled my struggles and denied them. But as soon as I really just owned what was happening in my life and accepted the struggles, that's when I started building resiliency. That's when I started progressing and becoming a little bit more stable, not a whole lot. Um, and uh, that's when I started building my support system. So that's when things really started to change for me, is when I really just owned, like, this is me, this is what I have. It's not going to go away. Um, another big thing that I learned is, is, is that it's not going to be one tool that solves your, your issues. And there's two things wrong with that statement. The firstly is that I'm not going to solve my issues. I never will. They're always going to come back. But what I can do is become the master of managing them. So replace solve with manage. And it's not going to be one tool that helps me manage. It's going to be a toolbox. So for all my mental states, depression, anxiety, social anxiety, irritability, suicidal situations, I have my tools that help me in those situations. So for depression, I know that having McDonald's helps. Watching a funny TV show like The Office helps. Telling someone how I'm feeling helps. Going to therapy helps. Journaling, going for a walk outside. For anxiety, all my tools. Social anxiety, all my tools. None of them on their own makes anything go away, but you use them collectively and strategically. That's what helps me bounce back and manage. 
And so I want to encourage everyone here to take an honest look at your mental health. Like, what, what causes pain? What's your trigger? What does it feel like? And I challenge you is that if you're struggling, I dare you to pick one person in your life to open up to because it can seriously change your life. And if someone comes to you who's struggling, I dare you to come back with love and compassion and support because you can seriously change their life. Thank you. And next we're gonna hear from Matthew McCoy and his, as much as he can fit in with the time in his journey because it is, is quite the story. So we'll hear from Matthew next. Thank you, Ben, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, my name is Matt McCoy, and uh, I don't even know where to start. Um, I always say that I hate speaking publicly, yet here I am. So um, uh, we are crunched for time here, so uh, one thing that I do go into discussion about is my abuse as a child. Um, I was sexually and physically abused by my maternal grandfather um, from the age of five until I was about 13, 14. Um, I say it started at five because that's the earliest memory I can really recall. Um, I don't know when it actually started. I just don't, I just know when it stopped. Um, I coped uh, by using medications. Um, I hurt my knee when I played football and from hurting that knee I was prescribed an opiate painkiller. Um, I was given a pretty high amount of them at the time, and when those ran out, I was subsequently sick, but I also found out that by taking this medication, it also made my pain go away, and not just the physical. Um, it made me comfortably numb, which is what I find is the best way to describe it, um, and through those years of using, I would upgrade from, you know, uh, prescribed medication to street drugs. Um, I would graduate from high school um, in South Florida, and I was voted the most outgoing senior of my senior class. Our, our school was huge. Uh, our class had over 800 graduating kids. Um, six months later, I had my first serious suicide attempt, and I was the kid in class that no one ever saw coming. Um, no one knew about my abuse. Um, I went to my mother when I was 13 years old and told her what was going on and she told me to shut my mouth and take the money when he dies. Um, and so, yeah, it's shocking, absolutely. Um, th that was supposed to be my protector and it definitely wasn't. Um, after high school, uh, I would, you know, continue to upgrade and graduate uh, in, in the form of drugs and I was a heroin addict. And I would begin IV drug using. Um, at the ripe age of 18, um, I got involved with a much older woman, and uh, she kind of helped me come up with a scheme to rob a store. Um, I robbed a store with a BB gun in Texas when I was 18, and the do not mess with Texas is not just a really cool bumper sticker, they mean it. <laughs> um, <laughs> excuse me. So, uh, subsequently, I, I, I was locked up. Um, I was given probation on it, surprisingly enough. Um, and. I was violated, I think about five, five years later, for not paying fees. Um, it was a technical violation. I had never committed another crime, and uh, I was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, I did six and a half years in the state of Texas. I never committed so much as a single infraction while I was there. 
I was a shot caller for a gang while I was in prison. Um, I got all my cool tattoos there. I got cut twice, stabbed a couple times. It was not fun. Um, I tell you all this stuff to tell you where I come from. Um, it's nowhere near as important as where I'm at now. Um, I was subsequently deported uh, back to Canada. I've been here five years. Um, ben said at the beginning of this, I've been sober 11, um, 12 years in October. Um, thank you. Thank um, you. Am, I'm married now. I have two beautiful daughters. Um, they're awesome. One goes to Niagara College. Um, uh, but since, since coming out here, I had a fresh start. I was, uh, I was basically homeless in Toronto. When you're deported, they give you a one-page travel document, um, and then they take it from you at the border. I had no family here. I had nothing. Um, I was on OW for two months, and then I got off of OW because that's what you do. Um, I got a job, uh, and then I applied for a job in Mount Forest and came up there, met my wife, stole her job. We'll just fast forward to that part. Um, but then about a year ago, uh, a boy died of a drug overdose in Owen Sound, and they sent out grief counselors, and our, our daughter went to the school, so she got a thing in the mail saying, hey, we're sending grief counselors. And me and my wife talked, and I said, you know what, maybe now's the time to start telling people my story, because I know if that boy died from using opiates, that he's got about three or four of his friends that are still out there that are using and maybe don't feel like there's anybody to talk to. So we opened up a phone line out of our house and uh, had it 24 hours a day. And it still goes, it's a, it's a mobile phone. Um, I partnered with Kendra Fisher from the Mentally Fit organization and she's paid for me to become a, a certified peer support worker. Um, so I got that done in November and I'm also a certified assist trainer, so I uh, train people in suicide first aid and intervention. Um, so my time's up, but thank you for coming out and thanks for having me. And to be honest, the screen is quite intimidating. There's a big countdown clock, and then when you're done, in capital letters, it says time's up. So, <laughs> it, yeah. So now we'll go into a little bit of conversation. I want to dive into the messages these individuals have, have already kind of brought up, but dive in a little deeper. And the first, I'll go in the order that they spoke. And my first question for Amber, and it's, it's when we had our, it was one of the first podcasts, and it's a message I share with everyone, and one that I, I think about every time there's a little challenge. And it was, before we got to Ryan about acceptance, it was with Amber, and it was just this idea of if I don't, you'd said if, if you don't accept CF and learn everything you can about it, there's no way that you'll be able to lengthen your time span with the disease. And I wondered how that process went for you and was there a day that made you think, I need to accept this and how it's changed your ability to deal with it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think that our, often we find our strength in our biggest struggles. And so for me, it was learning to accept this disease and then not just accepting it, but then embracing it and realizing that, yes, this, there was this obstacle thrown at me and um, this diagnosis that I'm going to have right now indefinitely and learning to just 
educate myself as much as I can and then do as much good that I can from it and educate others and spread awareness and kind of like what I talked about. If people hadn't done that before, I wouldn't be here today. So it's my turn to do that and continue the cycle and continue to raise money and spread awareness and, and that's my job. You can now see why every time I record a podcast episode, I have to edit out, oh my God, that's incredible. Oh my God, that's amazing, like a hundred times because of individuals like this. It's, it's tough to not say that when, when you get responses like that. The other question I had is going off of what you said. When in life, when there's something we cannot change, whether it's income, whether it's an illness, anything that we would love, I wish I could change this so that I know I never will be able to. When, when doctors give you a diagnosis and tell you where you're at and where research is with CF, how do you find any type of calm or ability to accept that? Yeah, so I think it was definitely hard to learn and wrap my head around the idea of no cure or a reduced life expectancy. But uh, at a young age, my mom told me a quote, and it's, life's 10% about what's given to you and 90% is about how you react to it. So I think if I dawned on the fact that I can't control that I have CF and I can't control that there's no cure, I would just be stewing. So I've learned to accept that I can't control that, but that there's so many other things I can control in my life. I control how I fight it and how hard I fight it and who I have in my life to help me fight it, who I love, um, what I do with my life. and. So focusing on all of the little things around it that I can control and not dawning on the one aspect that I can't. Amazing. Now I'll head over to Ryan here. And a question I, I have for you out of the gates is what's one thing you would want people in this room to know about mental health that maybe isn't talked about or, or something that you've learned that people might not know. I know it's a big conversation in, in the media today, but if there's there, is there anything out there that you would want everyone in here to, to take away with them? Mm, I think it's funny because I talk about the toolbox and that was probably the first thing my first therapist said to me, because that's about the toolbox, but it never made sense until I realized it on my own. So that's huge. but to understand that it's a journey and things aren't just gonna disappear tomorrow. You have to uh, um, invest in yourself constantly and keep accepting the re your reality to, uh, to see real progress. And you know, then you look five years down the road, you look back and you see that you actually progress. But in the day to day, it doesn't feel like it all the time with mental health, that's for sure. And going off of that, I think it's, you talked about how, and I've heard this from other people that take medication with mental health and with their mental health adversities and they'll be on their medication and they'll start feeling better and they think, I don't need this anymore. So they get off the medication and the, the issues come back. And I wondered, what is your mindset on accepting that, you know what, this is gonna be a continued process of, and a continued thing I have to work with. What is your approach to that every day? With medication? With, or just in general, not even the medication, I'll, we'll get to that next, but just in regards to having this as a part of your life, a bipolar, that there are tough days ahead even though I'm having a great day today. Yeah, that's actually something that I really struggle with is, um, you know, I can feel so good for like three days and then so bad for the three days and nothing I've done has changed. And uh, it's kind of like what Amber said, you just, maybe I'm wrong here, but it feels like you just don't have control 
and you can be doing everything right, you know, therapy, good sleep, meditation, mindfulness, talking to my friends. I mean, I feel like I've done everything sometimes, and when I really start struggling, I get really frustrated, and that's when I kind of have to catch myself and be like, Ryan, this is just part of the process. Can I stick to your tools, talk about it, get good sleeves, eat healthy, exercise, and things will bounce back, and they do. So that's how it works for me. Some people struggle longer periods of time, but I think if you stick to your system, um, things tend to bounce back. Awesome. And lastly, I wondered, and, and this was a big learning experience for me with, with you sharing on the podcast what medication has done for you. And there's a lot of skepticism about medication. It's a new thing with mental health. And, and I know some people say, don't, you shouldn't take it. You should just use natural remedies. So I wondered what you go into that side of things, what medication has done for you or enabled you to do. Yeah, I, I kind of cringed earlier when you said that it was what really solved everything for me, and not to like call you out or anything, but medication <laughs> has... The first time, this is new. I know, but it's, medication can, can work wonders for people. Unfortunately for me, it hasn't, and, and since I've been diagnosed the past two years, it's been really challenging, and that's for me an area where I feel there's a lot of improvement because I feel like I'm doing everything on my own, and uh, that's actually something that I'm going to start addressing with my psychiatrist in the next couple of months. But um, medication can work great. It can do nothing. It can cause you to feel worse, better, everywhere in between. Um, but that's also a journey on its own, finding the right medication. Cool. Ryan Martin. No hard feelings. <laughs> Matt, for you, and I never asked this on the podcast because it was... I feel like I didn't even say much when we recorded because it was just this incredible journey you, you took me on. What was the scariest moment of your story? <laughs> he told me he doesn't read emails, so he didn't get the, question, the potential questions in advance. So, um, I think the scariest part of my story would really be coming up here when I was deported, and I know that probably sounds crazy. Um, because like, I've had some pretty crappy times. But um, it was so unknown to me. And it was, despite not having those um, parental supports that you know, we hope people have growing up, um, I still had supports of, of friends and family still in the States. You know, I had kids that I had grown up with my whole life. Um, you know, I had teammates. I, I had kids that I wrestled with that probably saved my life and didn't even know it. <laughs> But coming up here, I had absolutely nothing. I had nothing, I had no one. Sure, I had a fresh, fresh slate, it was great. I didn't have to check the convicted felon box and that was a really cool thing to do. Um, but I, I also didn't have a home. Um, you know, I had no clue how I was gonna support myself. So yeah, it was, it was pretty terrifying. When you talked about, or in our, on the episode, that people don't, Drug, when people are addicted to drugs, they, they don't decide one day, I, I want to start taking whatever and, and become addicted to it. It's often a coping mechanism for something that they maybe haven't had the chance or the ability or, or want to deal with. And, and this addiction allows them to, to keep going. What is it that's changed specifically in your life or tactics you've utilized, changes in any way that have given you the ability to live without drugs now? Um... I, I always say that, that I'm very blessed to know where my um, addictions stem from. My, my addictions are a coping strategy. It's 100% stems from my trauma. I know that. I'm, I'm very blessed to have that. 
Um, so kind of when I dealt with those things, um, the addiction kind of went to the wayside with it. Um, I, I still have bad days. I still have days where depression gets me good, good and by the head and I get my own head and it's, it's rough. Um, but I, I, I self-care. I, I can't hit that enough. I haven't, I've, I've, I haven't been a good example of self-care in the past and it, it, it was terrible. Like I burnt myself out. Um, but uh, yeah, self-care, journaling. Man, I write a lot. Um, I'm actually just started writing my book after everybody kept telling me to do it. So, um, so that's what I do. I write. I write a lot. Amazing. That's Amber, Ryan, and Matthew. Uh, you can take it with you. So. Before I welcome up our next three guests that are gonna come up here shortly, I thought if we're all, well not myself, but these amazing individuals are being open and vulnerable tonight and, and sharing their stories, I thought it would only be right if the audience did the same thing. So don't worry, you're not gonna have to get up and dance. But while we, while we have a little intermission here, people can stand up, move around a little bit. Uh, the challenge I'm gonna put out there is, is put yourself out there to introduce yourself to someone else. That's literally what I do every, Monday on this podcast, and it's made me so much better in every aspect of my life. So for the next timers on, so the next, for the next minute and a half, um, I encourage you to introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. If you have to stand up, you can move around, and, and then I'll we'll circle back with the next three guests. So we're going to move on to our, well, thank you for doing that, by the way. I love that everyone was out standing up, moving around. That was awesome. It's cool to see. Our next three speakers, again, three more incredible people that are the hero of their own story and, and now heroes for other people. So first we're going to hear from Chris Miranda, who was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre and lost the use of his hands and feet, an ex-pro golfer. And the interesting thing is that hasn't stopped him from, one, teaching people how to play sports and specifically with me, how to actually play the game of golf somewhat decent. It also hasn't stopped him from being an incredible father. Then we're going to move on to Nicole Robertson, who actually I'm learning more and more is a bit of a jokester. And she wanted me to put on her slide, uh, blind, so what? And um, blind since birth, was a competitive swimmer, an athlete of all sorts, is also a piano, uh, piano teacher with Wilfrid Laurier. Nick Nezick will be our next guest, who is an unbelievable individual that battled through cancer and beat cancer twice. And he's, when people say, oh, that person lives life to the fullest, he literally does live his life to the fullest. There are days when I'll get home at, at 7 p.m. and I've been working all day and we all know what that feels like. You want to melt into the couch. And I'll just sit down on the couch and knowing Nick is in the same shape, he'll text me and say, are you ready to go paddleboarding? because he does jam as much as he can into every single day and does live life to the fullest. So those are our next three speakers. So first we'll hear from Chris. <coughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming tonight, folks. Um, I'll make a couple promises up front. One is I noticed a young guy over here. I'll do everything I can to keep the swearing to a minimum for you. Mom, <laughs> it uh, may not work. And uh, if I start talking about family, uh, I may need a moment. So that's uh, straight up what it, where I'm at. So 
I got uh, four minutes and 40 seconds here to, to run through 30 some odd years of my life. So um, I guess the easiest way to present GBS, which is a short version of, of what I have, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And just to be clear, GBS is not what you plugged in to your car on how to get here tonight. That's GPS, so big difference, big difference. You don't want to plug this into yourself. It's, it's not good. Um, so 11 years old, I get a job at a golf course private club in Hamilton where I grew up and uh, started playing golf and that's what I did every summer. Played golf, um, played baseball, played on the rep team uh, during the winter for hockey, played AAA my whole life and this carries on for seven years and will bypass all the bad stuff that I didn't do anything bad in high school, son, nothing. Um, so 18 years old, or sorry, 16 years old, I got my license, life's great, this golf thing takes a back seat I played three rounds of golf when I was 16 years old. 17 years old, I played one round of golf. And at 18, I turned professional. So I got a little bit of athletic ability in me. We're uh, progressing through. We're now uh, 33 years old. And I've married my beautiful wife. And we just bought Cambridge Golf Club. And I've missed the Canadian Open qualifier, or Canadian Open at the qualifier by one shot. Uh, shot 67 with a double on the final hole. We've all been there. It's okay. <laughs> Everybody can sigh. We've all been there. Um, so I was right there, playing great. And I went to play men's league hockey with a couple of buddies in, uh, in uh, I guess it would be October. First week of October. And I went out. And uh, like I said, I played AAA my whole life, feeling pretty good. And I fell down. I'm like, first shift. I'm like, well, that's, that's not right. Get back up, do my thing. Puck comes to me. I go to one-time it down on my face. Like, something's up. Shoot the puck in the corner. Skate back to the bench. The boys, I got to go. Somebody flip me the key. And, of course, the jokes start. Take the skate guards off. There's tape on your skate. All that sort of stuff. Um, we're now on October 16th. And Carla gives birth to our oldest. She's now 12 years old. That's October 16th. Go through a battery of tests. Figure out why... I have pins and needles in my feet and in my hands. If you want to know what GBS feels like, just before you take break, no act your funny bone in the armrest. That feeling is 24-7 in my hands and my feet. 24-7. So October 16th, my son's born. November 2nd, we go down to St. Joe's in Hamilton, get some test results back. Doctor, uh, we're in there with Carla. Cole's in the car seat. The doctor looks at Carla and says, you better make plans. Your husband might not be here in six months. I got the world by the ass. I'm a phenomenal golfer. I'm a men's league hockey player. <laughs> I can drink beer with the best of them when the game of hockey's done. And now a doctor's telling me I've got six months. I looked up and I said, earmuffs, I said, you got the wrong patient. That was my reaction. Pardon me if there's any doctors in the room. Blood transfusions, uh, centrifuge, tiger blood doping, all that sort of stuff. Did it all. So I had a choice. I could be down and out. I could be a deadbeat dad. I could sit on the couch and say, my legs don't function like the neighbor, like Ben Finelli, like the next guy. Or I had a choice. Could be the dad I always wanted to be. 
I don't run around in the backyard and play soccer like I wanted to, like I expected that I would. But you know what? My two boys need a goalie. We build, a, we build a backyard rink. Always dreamed of being that dad, teaching my boys how to play hockey, how to skate, how to shoot, how to pass. I hire Ben Finelli. <laughs> but in the backyard rink, the greatest gift, Christmas gift I ever got, greatest Christmas gift I ever got was a full set of goalie equipment. They've got a goalie now for hockey, too. <laughs> so there's choices that we make in life with the cards we're dealt and what we're given. There's a day, it probably takes about 75% more effort for me to walk to and from than most people here in the audience. And at the end of the day, you know what? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. But when neither of my boys say, hey, Dad, you want to play ping pong? So next time your kids ask you to do something, trust me, you're not that tired. Thank you. And next we're gonna hear from Nicole Robertson. Hi, thank you very much. Ben, I'm just curious so apparently it's a countdown clock that I can't see? <laughs> I, I told you, that's what it was like in the back room. It was Nicole entertaining all of us, so. Okay, so my life in a nutshell. Um, I was born completely blind, and at three months old, I was diagnosed with optic atrophy, which I guess just means that my optic nerves either didn't develop or just are not there. So the message doesn't get to my brain for me to be able to see. Um, it is believed that this could have been caused because my mother came in contact with German measles when she was pregnant for me. But I feel that as a child growing up who was blind, that I am, was very lucky. My family was not overprotective in the least, and they encouraged me to live life to the fullest. I grew up on the street with over 50 children and knew my way independently to all my friends' houses without a cane in my hand. I know, crazy, eh? <laughs> Actually, I wasn't given a cane in my hands until I was 11 years old. At a very young age, probably around five, I even jaywalked. <laughs> it's true. You think it's funny, but it's actually true. Uh, not having any idea how dangerous this was, but what I didn't realize later on in life is that there were always neighbors watching out the window to make sure I was okay. Active play played a huge role in my childhood, and I was always included in all of the activities on the streets. Some of my favorite games included skipping, hide-and-go-seek, <laughs> baseball, tag, red rover, toboggan and tobogganing and skating. I learned to ride a bike without training wheels but on very long bike rides, and they were long, probably an hour or two, I would ride double with either my sister or one of my friends. That was back in the banana seat days. <laughs> Active play helped me with spatial awareness, movement, exploring my environment, 
socialization, and interacting with my sighted peers. I was the only one that was blind on the street, just saying. <laughs> At six years old, I left home to attend the W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind in Brantford, about five hours from where I lived. And as you can imagine, this was a huge adjustment for me. I had limited contact with my family, as long distance was expensive, and I only went home every other weekend. And when it was a snowstorm, my bus was cancelled, so I would only go home once a month. This was brutal, but it was a vital part of my education. I had to be there. There was no choice. It was important for me to stay at W. Ross for the 13 years that I did because of sports and music. And here you go. In sports, I participated in synchronized swimming, cross-country running, karate, cheerleading, baseball, gymnastics, roller skating, ice skating, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, to name a few. I've even been known to shoot a few baskets in my time. <laughs> but wait, most of my time was spent swimming competitively as an international swimmer over 10 hours a week, and I have medals to prove it. I began taking piano lessons at the age of seven and clarinet lessons at the age of 12, and soon realized that music was what I wanted to study as a career. And due to the incredibly dedicated music teachers that I had, my tenacity and hard work I was, went down the path to success. After graduating W. Ross, I studied at Wilfrid Laurier University, <laughs> where I received two degrees, one in music therapy and a Bachelor of Music focusing on education. I also have an ARCT in piano performance from the Royal Conservatory of Music, and I was awarded the gold medal for piano pedagogy for obtaining the highest mark in Ontario. <laughs> For the past 18 years, I am proud to say that I am a piano teacher at the Laurier Conservatory, where I manage a studio of over 60 students. This adds up to about 45 hours of teaching a week. I live independently in a condo that I own, and it is very beautiful, just saying. <laughs> I didn't even think about saying this, but someone reminded me to tell you that I also, in the past 10 years, have acted in four plays, three of which I had lead roles in. And in order to do this, I had to commute to London once a week for a three-hour rehearsal by bus. But it was all worth it. Thank you for listening to my life so far. <laughs> And don't worry that golf wasn't on her list of sports because previously she was already talking with Chris about an opportunity to learn how to golf at Chris's <laughs> golf course. <laughs> Next we'll hear from Nick Nezik. And again, talking on, on him living life to the fullest, just the other day I texted him and, and sent him some information about this event. Here's an update, here's what we're doing. And he said, oh great, great. Um, could you do me a favor though? And I said, yeah, what, what could I do for you? And he said, could you uh, make sure you have a great day, please? And that's the kind of guy Nick is, so I'll hand it over to him. Blood alone moves the wheels of history. 
It's a reference to Dwight Schrute from The Office. My friend Keegan is here, and uh, she bet me that I would not open with that. <laughs> what I will do for a cup of coffee. If I went to Waterloo for engineering, and if there is one thing that Waterloo Engineering does for you, it teaches you how to drink a cup of coffee <laughs> with the best of them. Um, so, yeah, that's a pretty cool picture. Um, my, my deal, my story. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 22, stage one testicular cancer. Uh, had a tumor removed, got over it. Uh, a few, less than a year later, was diagnosed with stage two testicular cancer. Uh, had nine weeks of chemotherapy, had a pretty major abdominal surgery, uh, and I've been on the right side of cancer ever since then. So, th thank you. The timer is moving, so I got, I got to be quick here. I, anyone who knows me, I have uh, kids that I coach hockey, they will attest, I love the sound of my own voice. I can talk forever, okay? Um, and I'm at almost at four minutes. Okay, on time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my deal. The reason I gloss over so quickly uh, uh, cancer is just because, it, yeah, it's something that happened to me, but I think what's more important is, you know, what I learn from it, what I take from it, try to, anyways. Um, now, the reason I'm holding a, a Dilbert, this is a Dilbert off my desk. I have a little calendar uh, that I read every day. It tells me a funny joke. No one likes them, but whatever. I do. Um, I had a speech. I knew about this event. I'm going to move around. I coffee, I swear. Um, so, I, uh, about five weeks ago, I had finished a speech that was for tonight, um, not a procrastinator, um, and I wouldn't be able to come here and say it to you without going home, looking in the mirror, and be like, you're an effing hypocrite. Because, to be quite, no, to be quite honest, like, I've done speeches before, and I, I think good ones, um, but I think that the reason that anyone who speaks so well is because they're passionate. They're passionate about what they talk about. So I can't stand here and be passionate about something I'm talking about and then go home and be like, eh, you're not living like that. So I called an audible and on my Dilbert today wrote a new speech uh, that I'm going to hit you with. So, and, and to be to be fair, I have to give credit to my partner Jennifer who couldn't be here tonight. Um, she called me out too, in a good way, in a good way. She called me out and said, you know, hey, like that's, this is good, but are you, are you really, are you walking the walk? Are you practicing what you preach? And the answer, quite frankly, would be no, because, uh, you know, hey, we're opening up. If you talk to Ben, uh, that picture, by the way, uh, coffee, uh, that's Howling Peak in Camor, Alberta. Beautiful. If you're ever in Canmore, go, go, go. Oh, my goodness. It's such a beautiful, yeah, we've got yeah, Canmore. Love it. Uh, Grizzly Paw Brewery, by the way. I'll give them a shout out. Um, where was I? Journal entry. So what I'm, this is literally a journal entry from today. Not kidding. I wrote this today. Um, the reason is, we're, Ben, if you talk to Ben for five minutes, he'll at some point say, we've got to bring humanity back. Bring humanity back to our conversations. And every time he says it, I can't help but think of Justin Timberlake, sexy back, right? Yeah, grade eight dance. We've all been there. Um, no, seriously, uh, bring the humanity back. So let's bring it back. Um, something that I uh, recently a few months, maybe or so, have been really struggling with is a, a sense of self-love, right? I have a hard time, eh, whatever, I'll say it. Um, I don't love myself, quite frankly. Uh, you don't have to be quiet, it's fine. Um, but it's okay, and it's okay because I'm on the right path of working towards getting to that spot where I can say I do love myself. So I'm working on it. Uh, I'm working on it through, you know, talking to a therapist, I, I exercise like a we're not, not going to say that word. Um, I exercise a lot, and that helps me. Uh, I eat more or less pretty well. Pretty, pretty well. Uh, I do like pizza, though, my goodness. Um, 
You know, I talk about it. I have, I have a close group of people that I talk to about it, and by that I mean like two people. Um, I should have a bigger group, but you know, working on it. Oh my God, that clock moves fast. So, you have self-love. Self-love is what I'm working on. That's my journey that I'm working on, and that's why I had to call an audible on my speech today, because you know, heh, if I gave you the other speech, it would have been great and all, and then I'd go home and be like, nah, you're not living like that, so I can't do that. So self-love. Um, you know, it's really important to be honest with yourself. It, hey, if I can be vulnerable in front of, you know, hundreds of people, and this is being recorded, so maybe thousands of views later, uh, you can be vulnerable to one person, and you know, you can go home and talk to one person and say, hey man, like, I'm not okay and you could talk about something, right? So if I can do it for hundreds of people, you can do it to one person, hopefully. Um, so just, and, you know, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. A lot of people coaching, again, I'm pointing at the two players that are here, and I don't live, hi, I see you over there. Um, some of them are good at being honest with themselves, some of them are not. Uh, I know my assistant, or my head coach, I'm the assistant coach, he's here and he's probably laughing because some of them are not good at being honest with themselves, but that's okay. Um, you have, to, you have to ask yourself the tough questions. And you know what, a good tool, I know my clock's moving, but I don't care. Um, a good tool that you can take home for yourself is if you have five people in your life that you spend the most amount of time with, you talk to the most, you text the most, whatever. Most of you, it'll be a spouse, a couple friends, a coworker, whatever. You got those five people. You write down two or three things that come into your mind when that person's name shows up. So you have their name, first two or three things you think of. And be honest, be brutally honest. Uh, are they funny, are they smart, are they intelligent, are they hardworking, are they lazy, are they maybe not the best person, are they a liar, are they a negative influence, are they a bully? Be honest, be, be brutally honest with those five people. And then at the end you'll have you know, 10, 15 words on a sheet. That's how most people will actually describe you. So if you have a hard time being honest with yourself, do that exercise and that's a good way to be honest with yourself. Um, and then if you need to change things, hey, whatever you gotta do, go to therapy, go travel, like my roommate Cam, he's traveling right now, he's all over the world, it's pretty cool actually, at Cam Wind on Instagram, he takes really good pictures. Uh, I know he's a videographer for these two right here, they're having a wedding this year, I think, congratulations. Um, my invite's still in the mail, apparently. Mm. You can, that's funny, come on. Um, so I'll leave you with that, you know, first of all, watch more of The Office because not enough of you laughed at that joke about Dwight Schrute, thank you. Um, you know, be honest with yourself, really, really, truly be honest with yourself and get the right people in your life and do what you got to do, get on that journey to self-love because I'm on it, I, I hope, I hope, geez, I hope that you're all there. If you're not there, find a way to get there and uh, thank you very much. It's now no secret that Nick is an energetic individual that lives life to the fullest. <laughs> so now we'll do our questions. And my first question for Chris is, when you look back, you talked about when you were a hockey player and a golfer, quite an impressive golfer. Do you ever have thoughts of what was? And if you do, how do you cope with that today or find peace with that today? What I was? No. Next question. No, <laughs> no I don't. Um, and it's, it's quite simple. Who are you? Ben Finale. I hope that's the right answer. Yeah, who are you? Uh, brother, and coach, and student, maybe, if I can get into the program. <laughs> one, one of those three was right, is you're a brother. So what I was is what I still am. I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a grandson, I'm a husband, pretty damn good one because she's not here so I can say whatever I want. 
as long as the women's golf team doesn't tell her. So that's what I was before I got sick, and I still am those same things. What I can't do is something different. I can't shoot 67 anymore. I can't skate, but I can be a backyard rink goalie. I can't run around the backyard and deke my kids out with soccer, but I can be a target for them in net. <laughs> so what I was is what I still am, and I would challenge you to do the same. Your career, or your job, your coach, that's not who you are, that's what you do. And that's a big, big difference. You brought up something that I think people should be reminded of on the podcast, and it was when you see someone that may do something differently, may walk differently, may play sports differently, what, is, what would you want everyone in this room to think about as soon as they see that person, whenever it is, before the judgment comes in, what would you want that, that mental uh, conversation to be? A mental conversation with them. You didn't prep me on that one, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, is that on? Uh, no. Um, we live in a world of Trump. I mean, let's be honest. And he is only the... Um, tipping point for what is, what is society today. And there is a mass, mass amount of different types of people in this room. My goodness, I'm, I, I can't even want to count. If you all filled a form out on the way in, it would be helpful for us, but there's, there's a mass amounts of color, shape, sizes, um, uh, on and on and on and on and on. So, when you see me walk across the stage with a limp or two hands to hold a glass of water, otherwise it's clean up on aisle four before we carry on, you're no different than I am. You're a brother, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a wife. So what is that mental process that you go through? That's just them. If I had this limp at 73, Nobody would look at it, ah, he's an old man. 46, hmm, what's wrong with him? What's the difference? There's no difference. I'm the same guy I was 20 years ago. 14, 13 and a half years ago, pre, you won't be here in six months. So you don't want to look at those people different because they're the same people as you and I. They're family, they're friends. That would be the mental process that I would ask you to go through. Amazing. Chris Miranda. So, Nicole, I like that I heard a couple laughs there. When you talk about all the things you've done and continue to do and challenging yourself, I know on the podcast you had said it's not necessarily a challenge for you, and it... But from the outside, when you do all these incredible things without your sight, how is it that you find that, that courage to do so? The school motto at W. Ross is the impossible is only the untried. And that we were always reminded of growing up at school. And I, did, I didn't even really know what courage was. I just did everything I was told. So if they told me to get in the pool, I got in the pool. If they told me to get on a bike, I got on a bike. 
Um, so it was just, I was trying things and constantly being challenged, but I didn't even realize that I was. When I started swimming, it was a weekly event. It was like having a gym class, and I was actually afraid of water. I, I couldn't swim without someone carrying me around the pool for the first three months. Um, and here I am, you know, last couple of years at W. Ross, an international competitive swimmer. Um, so, yeah, courage, I don't know where it came from. I, I just think I grew up in an environment where I just always um, tried things and never knew what it was like to not try anything. Awesome. And just, just a side note, um, Nick did promise to teach me paddleboarding. <laughs> <laughs> you had an awesome story on the, on the podcast that I think we could dive into a little more and, and what you learned from it. But it was the idea that a history teacher had asked you to take a test in a different way, thinking that you needed to take it in a different way, and I wonder what that taught you. So I think I should just maybe give you the story, since I'm not sure how many people have actually listened to this podcast. Um, in my first year at... Is that... Are you chirping me there again? Oh, geez, I said that without thinking. Sorry. <laughs> During my first year at Wilfrid Laurier, um, I had a wonderful history prof who um, decided that she was going to tell me how I was going to do my exam. So she said, you're going to record your answers into a cassette recorder, that's what we had back then, um, and you're going to do it orally. Um, and I said, well, I can, I can type, I have a computer, um, and I, I'd really prefer to type it, that's, that's how I do things. And she said, well, if you do that, then um, the typos and the spelling will count. And I said, do they count for everyone else? And she said, yes. And I said, well, then they count for me too. So off I went to my computer and I typed my exam and got an A plus on my midterm, so there. <laughs> Um, so what this taught me was, this was based on her knowledge uh, from a previous student who had attended Wilfrid Laurier, who did all her exams uh, orally. So assumptions were made based on her, but no, no, no one ever asked me how I wanted to do things. And I, I just, you know, after explaining it to her and showing her what I could do, her expectations rose pretty quickly. And I will say that um, I, I have so many thanks to Wilfrid Laurier's faculty music because if it weren't for them, I would not be doing the job I'm doing today. Because of, because of my work ethic and uh, willingness to learn, they had expectations of me and I, I'm pretty sure I rose to them and tried to exceed them as much as I could. So um, I feel that, you know, that, that history test taught her a lot and I think in turn it taught a lot of other people you know, that um, we're all capable, just give us a chance. Nick, we had talked on the podcast when you told your story about, you actually had said that the surgeon came into the room listening to Eminem on his headphones, and I'll never forget that. It helped actually bring some comic relief to the, the serious conversation we were having. And you talked about being on that surgery table and not really having any other option but for them to proceed with what they needed to do, which was quite an extensive surgery. What was it in that moment that you learned about life? That getting an epidural hurts like so much. <laughs> but yeah, no, seriously, getting an epidural hurts a lot. Ladies who've had gone through childbirth, like man, that th I feel you, that sucks. It sucks so much. 
Um, but I'm glad I did it because it would have been awful without it. Um, no. So yeah, the, the surgeon, Dr. Nick Power, who I literally owe my life to, um, he's a surgeon at the London Health Science Center. Uh, awesome dude. His twin brother is a cardi, cardi, what's a heart surgeon? Cardi, whatever, Magillus? Yeah, okay. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy or whatever. <laughs> Didn't need Dr. Sher, what's his name? Derek, she Derek Shepard, yeah. No, uh, so what did it teach me? I mean... Yeah, he, he, like, he's a surgeon that's about to cut me open from, I have a mark, from, I know a lot of you have seen it, from, not a lot of you, that's wrong to say. <laughs> Some of you who are here have seen it. Um, it goes from basically my, my waistline to just below my chest, and you know they open you up, take your organs out, and then there's three tumors that were near my back and my spine they had to remove. Um, and he's just coming in, bumping Eminem in his headphones, back before AirPods, you know, the connected headphones, and he's bumping Eminem. This is like, he's maybe 5'8", maybe he's a skinny little dude, and he's a surgeon, like an unreal surgeon, and he's bumping m and so he's like, eh, it's just an athlete, right? Like getting pumped up before his big surgery, so yeah, hey, I'm telling jokes. What did it teach me? Um, <laughs> surgery's pretty easy, to be honest. Like you just take a nap, wake up, you're in a bit of pain, and then away you go. Um, no, hey, uh, I, well, I don't know what you learn in that moment. Um, have faith in people. Um, hope that they've done their job and their due diligence. You're, that's it? That's your vote? Your final vote? Okay. So not... I thought it was going to be a little more philosophical than that, but that's okay. I'll, I'll be more philosophical for the next one. So, the screen's already yelling at us, the time's up. So, Nick, you have an absolutely beautiful theory or metaphor analogy that you live by and just when we were on the radio the other day sharing it with people um, you had the radio host tearing up and the way you say it is incredible and I wondered if you could share that with the audience okay we'll be more serious um, so this is from Craig Craig Sager any NBA on TNT analyst right who passed away in 2016 I believe he's the one that wore the ugly ugly colorful suits right um, so his, one of his analogies was uh, in his ESPN SB speech about, uh, he won the uh, Jimmy V Award for Perseverance. And he talks about uh, time and his, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say verbatim because I can't, but it's essentially um, time cannot be bought, cannot be wagered with God. We all have a certain set amount of time in life. And then he goes on to say that time is essentially how you live your life. And I know one of my friends has that tattooed on his arm, so that's pretty cool. Um, but then he goes on to use the analogy of if you wake up every day and you think you have a blank canvas for your day, right beside your bed when you wake up, it's totally blank. And then every single moment that you go through in that day paints something on that canvas. So say you wake up and, for me, my roommate Cam, uh, say he says something stupid to me and we tell a funny joke in the morning and then we have breakfast together and then we go on about our day. That's you know, something painted, colorful, funny, on my canvas. And then every, as you go through your day, you know, more gets put on that canvas. And then finally, when you go to bed at night, you've got that canvas, same canvas from the day beside you. And you, every single day, get that blank canvas. And you have to say, is it full? Or are there empty spots? Are there spots of gray? Or is it full of life, color, fun? Um, so just try to fill that canvas every single day with as much color and as much love as you can. And, and I will, I'd be remiss to say, it's okay for gray to be on that canvas. Certainly, all the six of us up here talking, there's a lot of gray there. Um, it's okay to laugh. Like, we're self-deprecating. It's funny, um, I think. Um, it's like the Dilberts. I'm the only one that laughs at them. Uh, 
so it's, it's okay to have gray in your day. A good analogy, I'll, I'll end with this, I promise. Uh, if you, uh, good analogy someone told me. If you and I sat down at the start of the day and I gave you $86,400, boom, right there, cash money on the table, it's all yours. But you have to have a cup of coffee with me. That's the only, you know, asterisk with that. So you get 86 grand. You weren't promised that. You weren't owed that. You just got it. Sweet. But during our conversation, as you're seeing, I smacked the coffee cup over and 600 bucks gets ruined. Are you thinking, oh man, 600 bucks? Or are you thinking, damn, I still got almost $86,000 here that I wasn't expecting? That's rhetorical, but you're expecting, you know, you, you're like, damn, I got $86,000. So your time is no different, right? So in a day, you have 86,400 seconds every single day that you are not promised, not owed, right? You just get that every day when you wake up. That's 24 hours. And if someone is going to waste or ruin 10 minutes of your day, they're some total stranger, they're a jerk, they're mean to you, whatever, 10 minutes, that's 600 seconds. So was that 10-minute window that someone's ruined for you going to ruin the rest of those 86,000 seconds? No. You still got 86,000 seconds you weren't promised, weren't owed, weren't guaranteed. So just fill your canvas as much as you can, and if there is a bit of gray, don't worry about it, leave it, move along. If something's not going to matter in five years' time, don't spend more than five minutes being upset about it. Someone taught me that, and I use that a lot in my life now. Something's not going to matter in five years. Spend five minutes on it, then leave it, move along. How's that for philosophical? Before I conclude everything, though, I don't want something, there's something that I don't want to be overlooked here. And, and I always talk about this at schools, high schools, and the universities I've spoken at is that if you look at all these people up here and, and what they've been through, not one of them had a guideline or a checklist on what to do when you get diagnosed with cancer twice or when you're born blind or when you have cystic fibrosis, lose the use of your hands or feet. None of them had a checklist. No one, none of them woke up or were born and said, and be given a, a piece of paper that says, here's how you're gonna deal with it. Here's how you're gonna find the courage, the willpower, the resilience, all the buzzwords Everyone, every business is going to sell you, right? Get this, download this program and you'll have the willpower and you'll have the courage and you'll get through all your challenges. So how did they harness or embody those characteristics or traits? And the proof is in the pudding that all they did was step into that challenge. They stepped into that adversity. And I encourage you, if you don't believe me, check out the full-length podcast where they just looked at the adversity head-on and doing so brought out all those characteristics we talk about. The resilience. Everyone's trying to sell resilience today. Well, here's a simple way to find resilience. Stare the adversity in the eyes, and like Amber said, learn everything you can about it. Like Chris Miranda said, find a greater purpose in what you've been given. And when we do that, when we step into that adversity, we start pulling all these traits out. That's when our neighbors and people beside us say, oh my God, I." That's pretty awesome. I want to support that person. And if you look at people that have been like that, I know contrary to popular belief now because of the media, but Lance Armstrong. Or the Jeopardy host that just came out and said, I'm going to fight this thing. How many people just got behind him to support him? And when we do that, we all become the hero of our own story. And the best part, like everyone up here today, you then become a hero for other people. Thank you.
hug, brother. Good I'm job. just giving you a hug. Thank you. Watch out for the table. I know. You guys are amazing. And I got too excited there. I almost forgot this would not have been possible at all if it wasn't for the University of Waterloo, from Kelly and Stephanie answering all my emails and phone calls, to Matthew Grant who told me how to moderate a presentation like this. I don't know if I totally did a good job of that, but we'll see. And then also, also from Waterloo Athletics, I approached Roly with this idea three, four months ago, and it was a crazy idea, and he believed in me and said, let's do this. And that's why this happened, as well as Jenny McKay and Steve Brooks that answered 100 emails, 100 phone calls, and made this possible. And lastly, I said when I opened with a story that there was someone that told me, hey, you should stop what you're doing and start a podcast. And his name's Ian Bigford. He's a philosophy major, so similar to Nick, he can talk your ear off about things. Um, he's here today, and, and none of this at all the podcast, nothing would have happened if it wasn't for him tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you should, you should do this. So thank you to Ian as well. Thank you.